Hi, this is Elliot Fishman, and this lecture is going to be on hot topics in CT of the GI tract, and we'll probably be doing this for the next two weeks. And uh, what I've presented to you in this lecture is a number of different topics that have been in the literature lately with key articles and trying to go over some of the key points. So what about the appendix? There have been several good articles. The first one is this article from Hopkins talking about accuracy of the reconstruction protocols that we need to use. So the question always is, is what's the best way of looking at the appendix? We could get very thin sections, which means there's a lot of sections. We can get thicker sections, which means there's not as many. And so here's some good quotes. In this investigation of the contrast-enhanced CT of the appendix, visualization of the appendix, and confidence in interpretation of the axial images progressively improved with the use of thinner reconstruction sections. Now, what we did is we looked and said, well, we had several readers read the same studies weeks and weeks apart, so there was no memory. They didn't know the correct answer. And it was interesting that the uh, degree of correctness was not significantly associated with the reconstruction method. However, for correctly diagnosed cases as normals, confidence increased with thinner sections, which maybe isn't a surprise because the thinner the section, the better you see the appendix, and you can say, aha, it's absolutely normal. Again, what's the downside? The downside is looking at many images, and some workstations can't. In the old days with film, we couldn't do this, but as the authors state that if workstation network constraints limited department's capacity to manage a two-by-one type section, the study results show that even something as three-by-three three is surely better than five-by-five five and will give you better interpretive confidence. So we can look at it that way. That's a very good study, and now another study talked about using multiplanar reconstruction, and they found that in pediatric patients with suspected appendicitis, adding coronal reformation to routine axial images increased the confidence in diagnosis or exclusion of acute appendicitis, and the improved confidence in visualization of appendiceal and periappendiceal findings eventually resulted in increased confidence in diagnosing appendicitis. And I give you this article because it makes the point, as in many of the other articles I've showed you, is that people are now proving in study after study that going beyond the axial plane is not just more images but gives you the best diagnosis. Let's look at another area and that's the pancreas. One of the most common problems we see in radiology these days is incidental findings. The pancreas is one of them and as all of you know we keep seeing pancreatic cysts. The question is what do you do with them? How often does it occur? We did a study, looked at several thousand patients consecutive who were referred to CT but were now referred for pancreatic pathology and found that in a 16-slice scanner we found about 2.6% of the population had pancreatic cysts and there was an increased incidence with increasing age and patients of the Asian race. In terms of uh, management, we noted that Taino followed 82 patients with branch-type IPMNs without a mural nodule for 61 months, and nine of these showed progression on follow-up. None of these patients developed an invasive cancer during the study. So one of the things we typically do at Hopkins, and other people have written about this, Alan and Benin proposed that patients with mucinous cysts without a solid component and of less than three sonomy diameter can be safely followed conservatively with repeat studies because the risk of malignancy approximates the risk of mortality from surgical resection. So the key point is that we follow these patients routinely with CT at six-month intervals and one-year intervals. As long as there's no change, the patients can be managed conservatively. And again, this is a big issue. We need to really figure out how long we need to follow these patients for 
Are there certain patients who need to follow more closely, those with family histories of pancreatic cancer? Uh, and again, this is something that's evolving, but you can see 2.6% of the population is not a trivial number. Okay, now let's look at the small bowel. And lots of articles recently on the small bowel. And let's look at uh, things that relate to ischemia. In this article by Furukawa, recognition of characteristic CT appearances and the variations associated with each cause may help in the accurate interpretation in the diagnosis of mesenteric ischemia. So mesenteric ischemia had a number of etiologies, and they mentioned it very nicely. Arterial occlusion, venous occlusion, two most common, strangulating obstruction, be it through a hernia, internal, through a defect in the abdominal wall, bands, whatever, and then hypoperfusion associated with non-occlusive vascular disease, typically meaning there's significant vascular disease, but there's not occlusion, and it's a slow-flow phenomena. Now, CT angiography, our experience works very nicely. So let me show you some examples. Beautiful example of CTA volume rendering in MIP showing you the presence of stenosis greater than 60% in the patient's uh, proximal SMA. Very nice visualization. Again, you could see disease in the axial images, but it's hard to quantify. It's also easy to miss the degree of stenosis. And here's just a very nice visualization. I use a combination of MIP and volume rendering. Again, MIP is problematic in the presence of calcification. Volume rendering really gives you a good feel and you could directly visualize the thrombus. Another example, here's a case with SMA stenosis probably greater than 80%. You see the proximal vessel is markedly narrowed. Yes, there is flow, but look how much decreased flow there is. The sagittal view is the optimal view. The coronal view in the right perspective shows it nicely as in this case, but I really like the sagittal view. Another example, sagittal view. Here we see in the SMA there's occlusion. Now you want to be careful that you have the right plane, that you scroll through all the planes and make certain you're looking at occlusion. Uh, as you can see very nicely in this example. Now, just because you have occlusion doesn't mean you have ischemia because this patient has good flow from the celiac. And if you look carefully, this patient had good flow through the GDA, so you do develop collateral. So again, uh, it will indeed vary. Another example, look at uh, this case. Look at this occlusion in the patient's proximal SMA. The vessel is occluded, proximal calcification, extensive calcification of abdominal aorta. But again, the celiac looks very good here. There's reconstitution of the SMA beyond the area of stenosis. And this patient uh, did not have ischemic bowel. But again, this patient is at high risk because if anything happens to that uh, uh, celiac, this patient will be in trouble. Now, we also can see very nicely thrombus in the SMA. This is a wonderful case because if you look at the proximal aspect of the SMA, the vessel is beautiful. It's perfectly normal. There's no calcification of the SMA. There's no calcification of celiac. There's no calcification of the aorta. But when you look carefully, look at by the colic branches, and I'll show you a few more images. Look, there's an acute thrombus in the patient's SMA. And you can see that when I go through different projections, just a beautiful example of thrombus within the vessel. And I'll show it to you from MIP imaging to volume rendering. You see all of the branches, but look at this discrete thrombus sitting right in the vessel. That's acute thrombus uh, in the patient's uh, you know, uh, SMA. Just a very, very nice example of that pathology. Now, of course, we look very carefully at the vessels in looking at ischemia, but we look at other findings. We look at bowel wall thickening or thinning, thinning more common in arterial ischemia. We look at bowel wall attenuation, 
High attenuation typically means hemorrhage. We look for pneumatosis, distension of bowel, as well as abnormal mesenteric vessels. So let's look at some examples. Here's a patient uh, has portal venous air. That's a bad sign. Now we know that it's not always ischemia, but in this case, when you look at the patient's small bowel, there is pneumatosis in the bowel wall. This patient has ischemic bowel. The bowel is infarcted, very long segments of bowel. This patient went to surgery. It's a surgical emergency, but there's so much pneumatosis. There's so much bowel involved. This patient actually, uh, despite heroic efforts, uh, died. And you can see this is a high-risk patient, abdominal aortic aneurysm, endovascular stents, just impressive pneumatosis. Now, when we mentioned beyond the bowel, uh, looking at CT findings, I showed you some examples of mesenteric vessel abnormalities. One of the other things is you can see stranding in the mesentery. We mentioned air and venous structures. Uh, here's just a good example of a patient with carcinoid, where you get that desmoplastic reaction in the mesentery. Carcinoid patients, you can see the mass that has calcification. These are the patients that often develop ischemic bowel because of this tethering. Very nice visualization in this example. Very, very prominent vessels, very uh, impressive calcifications. So again, it's something we see, and carcinoid, often the images look worse than the patient's actual condition, but other patients eventually do develop ischemic bowel. So just a very nice visualization, and I'm showing you a range of images in this patient. In these patients with this desmoplastic reaction, we also can see the fact that you can have portal vein involvement. Here you see cavernous transformation of the portal vein, and just showing you a number of different images, just very nice visualizations, and look at all the collateral vessels you're seeing in the mesentery. So I'm just giving you a large series of images scrolling through the abdomen, showing you all those very nice vessels. Now, another thing we can see with SMA that can lead to ischemia or occlusion is dissection. Now, the most common situation we see is one like this, where the patient has a dissection of the abdominal aorta, and it tracks down and involves the SMA. And again, the sagittal perspective shows it very nicely. Here you can see I'm tracking along the vessel. We can use vessel tracking software to show that dissection in the patient's SMA. Very nicely shown in this example. Uh, very easy to occlude the vessel in the presence of this type of dissection. So indeed, a very, very important observation. The last thing in this first part we'll look at will be the liver. And just a couple comments. A good article by Anderson, familiarity with both expected and unexpected imaging appearance of common benign hepatic tumors, less commonly encountered benign hepatic tumors, and iatrogenic abnormalities potentially masquerading as hepatic tumors allow the radiologist to achieve an informed differential diagnosis. And let me just go through a few of the things they mentioned in the article and some of the things we've gone through in other talks, but I thought it's a good time to review it because it was just published. Hepatic adenomas, they're usually solitary, 90% female, with predisposing factors of oral contraceptive use, anabolic steroids, and glycogen storage disease. Hepatic adenomas occur more frequently and more often in patients with hepatic steatosis, according to Ferlin. CT findings. It's typically a well-defined mass that may contain hemorrhage, necrosis, fat, and rarely calcification. On non-contrast CT, when you look at it, it's hypodense or isodense. It enhances moderately, not like a hepatoma, and usually not, as, not that homogeneous enhancement of FNH. Uh, on portal phase, it's similar to surrounding liver, um, and it can become very much isodense, particularly on delayed phase imaging. 
A key finding that's unique in hepatic adenomas is it is the classic lesion with spontaneous bleeds. Now, hepatomas can bleed, hemangiomas can bleed, but uh, in our experience, it's uncommon. Hepatic adenomas is the one. Young female bleeding tumor, you got to think hepatic adenoma. You see it very nicely. In this example, large subcapsule of blood, multiple lacerations in the liver, extensive hemorrhage, very, very nicely shown in this example, tracking down toward the right lower quadrant. You see this appearance, it's a home run diagnosis. Another case, abdominal pain, female, look at the left lobe of liver, there's a bleed in the left lobe, there's high density, very, very classic appearance of hemorrhage. Now, what happens with hepatic adenomas, once they bleed, the lesion typically ruptures, so you may not see a discrete mass because you see simply blood. Sometimes if you go back later, you may see the lesion, but often you will not. And this is just a very nice example. Hepatic adenomas can be very difficult. Look at this nice example. Uh, look at the arterial phase imaging. The CTA looks pretty good. There's a little bit of irregular enhancement in the left lobe of the liver, and there is a mass. There's something in the left lobe. There's a few funny vessels, and there is a mass there. And I'll go through a series of images I created. When you look at the CTA, there is some splaying of the left hepatic artery, so I do recognize that. Uh, but it's really on delayed phase imaging. It's interesting in this case. The lesion wasn't very vascular, but look how delayed phase imaging shows you multiple hepatic masses. Could this be METS? I guess so. Could it be hepatoma? I guess so. But this was biopsy-proven multifocal hepatic adenomas. Just very, very nice visualization of these multiple masses. Now, I would say that's a very unusual presentation. That's very, very uncommon but it's, it's a very impressive case. So you really want to be thinking about that possibility. Not every case of, of hepatic adenoma is going to be vascular, and not every case is going to be uh, with blood. So it can be a very difficult diagnosis. I find FNH to be much easier because in those cases, the lesions are iso or hyperattenuating. The key thing is arterial phase imaging. We've showed you this before. They're hypervascular but homogeneous, as vascular typically as the IVC, and then they become isodense on late phase images. And here's just one example. FNH is often multiple. They have a central scar, central feeding vessel, but no neovascularity. Just a very nice example. I thought I'd also show you a couple comments on biliary cyst adenomas. There are a few articles about this very uncommon lesion, cyst adenoma, cyst adenocarcinoma, can be very large, septations are common, nodularity is common, uh, and many people think cyst adenomas are the premalignant form of cyst adenocarcinomas, and here's just a cyst adenocarcinoma. Large cystic hepatic maths, multiple septations. For a second, you look and you say, gee, this looks like polycystic liver disease, but there's nodules and also it doesn't involve the entire liver. So just something to be aware of. I'll also, just in closing on the liver, mention there have been several articles talking about syndromes with hemangiomas, Klippeltrani Weber, Osler Weber, Rondu, and Vanipalinda all have increased incidence of hepatic hemangiomas. Most commonly, hepatic hemangiomas, as we know, about 10% of patients, their incidental findings. I want to show you this case to make the point that in an article we wrote about uh, masses that simulate pancreatic or duodenal tumors, a giant hemangioma hanging off the liver, as in this case, you look at it quickly on the axial imaging, you th you're not thinking about liver, but when you look at the 3Ds and you follow the sequence, you see the very classic peripheral puddling, very nice example of an exophytic 
hepatica mangioma. And you can see as I go through the images, the puddling very, very nicely seen. So again, very important. One last thing to comment on, I made the point before about articles coming out showing you that coronal imaging or 3D imaging is very helpful clinically. Here's an example talking about detection of hepatoma in cirrhotic patients, the added value of coronal reformations. And just to give you the quote, with 64 MDCT, the addition of isotropic coronal images in addition to the axial images, improved reader confidence for detection of HCC was no statistically significant improvement in sensitivity, positive predictive value, or diagnostic accuracy. This improvement, however, came at a longer interpretation time cost, but again, if you build it into practice, it's not going to be that bad. The average reading time for the combined interpretation of transverse and coronals was about 12 minutes. Uh, which meant it was about uh, seven minutes longer than looking at either axials or coronals alone. But again, I think when you build it into your practice, the times will drop. But also, even if the times didn't drop, one would have to admit increased accuracy is worth that increased time. So with that, why don't I stop at this point, and we'll pick it up uh, next week, and we'll pick up with, again, some of the recent articles on imaging of the liver. Thanks very much.